Hello and welcome to the Living Life Differently podcast. We are the Mahojos. I'm Amy. And I'm Ali and we live in a static caravan on a farm in South Wales with our son Ollie and our dog Dizzy. We're currently on a year off together, waiting patiently to get going on a European campervan adventure. In the meantime, we decided to set up this podcast to share stories of women who are living life differently, women who are doing things different to the norm. So, if you're feeling a little stuck in life or need confidence to make some big changes, then keep listening as we have some brilliant guests. In this episode, we speak with Louise Domain, who moved from the UK to the Yukon Wilderness in Canada with her husband, Neil. Listen as she tells us all about her decision to leave and the challenges of wilderness life. Enjoy! Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Living Life Differently podcast and we are delighted and excited to have with us today a lady called Louise Domain. Uh, We're not going to say where she's calling from because we want uh, Louise to tell you all about where she is in the world because we're super excited. So Louise, over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself, your age, where you live, who you live with. Yeah, Yeah, hit us with it. (laughs) <laughs> all right I'll, I'll do my best and thank you so much for having me on the podcast this is this is really exciting and there have been some really good stories already so thank you so much for inviting me on um so my name is Louise Domain um and I live completely in the wilderness in the northwest of Canada um in the subarctic and I live I live on the Yukon River in a log cabin and basically we're just in the middle of thousands and thousands of square miles of forests and mountains um, and I live on the traditional territory of the Trondek Wichen so we're very grateful and honoured to be able to live here and I live here with my husband and uh, Neil and my dog. Oh what's your dog's name? Homer. <laughs> He's an old uh, Alaskan husky, a, a sled, a retired sled dog, retired early uh, sled dog. He's not that old, but he was—he just wasn't that good at it, so he got retired, and we've got him as a pet. Oh, I love him! And um, for anyone listening, we've got Ollie with us at the moment, and Amy, obviously. Uh, you might hear him gurgling in the background, and he might—he might need to make a sharp exit unless he, he settles. But yeah, we're we're trying to do this as a family, so let's see how we get on. So. Killer, killer question. So, Lou, how did you end up living in the Yukon out of all the places in the world? <laughs> well, it's it is it's actually a really long story, so I'll sort of do my best to not make it the full podcast. But um, so I'll try and sort of bullet point things a little bit. But um, it was kind of my dream as, as a as a little girl, really, to live in a log cabin in Alaska. I just sort of had always wanted to. Um, and and we actually started, we're in Canada now, but we actually started in Alaska, in the Alaskan wilderness. Um, and it, it had always been my dream. And, and I got to, I'm 50 now, and I, I got to my, my late 20s, which felt like really, really old in the t- at the time. You know, I might be going dead soon or something. So I, I sort of thought, before I get to 30, when I get to 30, I've got to start doing the things I always dreamt of. Um, and this is like way before people talked about bucket lists. But I knew I'd always wanted to go to Alaska. So I did like the cheapest holiday that I could find there, which is expensive. You know, it's not a cheap country to get to. And I, did, I think it was called Camp America, the company. And, you you know, they get like a load of you. And you, you basically book a place in a van and they take it around to different campsites at different places in Alaska, you know. Um, and it's sort of a van load of Brits and Kiwis and Aussies. And, you know, it was it was, it was a really good laugh. Um, and so I sort of I went 
to Alaska to sort of achieve my dream and just kind of do a holiday there. And and it was amazing. It was it was beautiful. It was kind of everything I thought it would be, which was was wonderful because often you know places can be you know you, you, they're not what you thought, but it was just wonderful. And then totally randomly, we were at a toga party in Anchorage, which is you know the kind of thing <laughs> you did on that trip. And I. I met a woman who knew me, like she recognised me, she came across the room and she said, you're an actor, aren't you? Because that's what I've always done for a living, I'm, I'm, I was an actor. Not famous at all, but she knew me because she was an actor as well, she had been, and we'd met at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and she was now living in Anchorage with her husband, uh, who was in the oil industry. And, and, and we got chatting and, and kind of a lot of it came through this connection, through this, this amazing friends of mine, we're still friends, Joe and Justice, because I said to her, like, I'd really love to come back in the winter. That's what my kind of fantasy was, because obviously I'd gone there in the summer when you could drive around, but I wanted to go back in the winter. Um, and, and I said, but I can't afford it. You know, it's really difficult to travel in Alaska in the winter. You can't just sort of drive around in a bus and stay in campgrounds. Um, and she said, well, if you want to come back, come and stay at our place. And and it was just an amazing offer. And, and through that, I, I did go back, I think, either that winter or the winter afterwards. And I booked a, a dog sled tour, which was another dream of mine to go like into the wilderness with huskies on a dog sled. And I did this amazing trip um, up to the Aragetch Peaks in the Arctic, in the, uh, in the Brooks Range, um, which is a very remote spot. Very few people have ever been there. And it was just astounding. It just, it just, it blew me away. It, like the beauty of it and the whole, there was this whole other lifestyle that I kind of didn't know existed of people like just living out in the bush and hunting and trapping. And it just blew me away. Um, and, and that's kind of what set me on it. But I never, ever in a million years imagined I would live there. Like never in a million years. You know, this, this was sort of 20 years ago that this happened. And after that, I became like totally obsessed with it. Um, and yeah, I was an actor, so I wasn't earning very much money at all. I wasn't a successful actor at all. Um, and I was like working in call centers and working in a nightclub and all those kind of things. But I had no kids and I had no commitments. And I was like really lucky. I had a council flat. This was like just at the end of the period when you could get council flats, you know, um, sort of in the 90s that I got it. So, that, I mean, that's like it was like gold dust then. And now yeah. it's just a kind of dream to have a council flat. Um, so I was really lucky. I lived frugally and I just basically at all my work, I saved every penny and every year or every other year, I would go back to Alaska in the winters and do like dog studying trips with, I started off with sort of outfitter companies. Um, and then I got into just finding hunting guides and guides who would just take me out with their own teams. And I just kind of saved to do this. And it was the thing I kind of lived for every year. Um, and then on one trip, I met a couple who lived extremely remote, like flying location. Um, you know, off grid, off road, had to get, you know, fly into there. And then they picked, picked me up with dog sled, um, took me to their cabin. And I just did an amazing trip with them. And we kind of got on. And like, I mean, it sounds kind of insane and it is kind of insane. Um, I sort of did two trips with them. And by that that point, I'd met my boyfriend at the time, now my husband. And I, and I took him there. You know, like he, he enjoyed it. But it wasn't his kind of thing. But he was like, OK, this is fun. So we kind of got to know each other. And, and they just said, this was in, I think, 2011 or 2012. They just said, well, why don't you come and live here? Because we need helpers. You know, they always had like helpers there because they had like 50 dogs. And it's, it's a very intense lifestyle living in the bush. You know, they had to fish, catch like thousands of salmon and hunt and things. And they said that we always need people to help and you love it. So why don't you move here and be helpers for us in the, in the yard and like help us train the dogs and get them fit for the tourist season and all that kind of thing. And it sounds kind of insane, but we, I said yes. Neil, my husband wasn't into it, but I kind of talked around. And, and we just went. Um, 
yeah, we just went. And, and, and it was, we, we were initially just going for a year. I talked him into going for a year just as a kind of break or to see how it went. But it was just astounding. It, it was it was sort of wondrous and magical and dangerous and challenging and difficult. And, you know, we were fishing salmon from a fish wheel and we were hunting and we were running dogs every day just out in the bush, just, you know, by ourselves. Um, and it, it went down to minus 73 Fahrenheit that winter. You know, it was, it was like Whoa. being on another planet. It was just something else. Um, and that's what really set us both of us on like actually we want to live here we want this lifestyle and also by doing that um we learned the basics of how to live in the bush so that was the kind of beginning part you know obviously after that it's a it's a long story and i'm sure we'll come to other bits of it but uh that was how i ended up living in the bush um initially Wow, and there's so much there to to talk about and unpick, and that yeah. it's really interesting I to know. hear that. You know, you, you started with this kind of girlhood dream of you know living in the wilderness, living in a log cabin, and then got the opportunity, or or kind of chased the opportunity, chased the dream by going out to Camp America. You know, dipping your feet in the snow <laughs> on the, you know not not at the yeah. time, but <laughs> later on you know, going out there and actually seeing what it was like. And then kind of, it sounds like you were quite drawn into the lifestyle, the people and, and that, and, you know, you've ended up living there and, and with your husband out there as well. Absolutely incredible. Do, do you pinch yourself Thank sometimes? You, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, when in the first few years, to be honest, it felt like we walked off the edge of a cliff. And I'm not I'm not kidding. You know, the, the sort of cliche cartoon image where Roadrunner or Wiley e. Coyote walks, you know, straight off the edge of the cliff and keeps going and then goes, ah, what have I done? And falls. Um, because everything here was so different. We basically abandoned everything we knew at the age of 42. My, my husband and my boyfriend, you know, at the time was 43. Um, and we like everything is different here. Not obvious things, just like the environment and what you would do for work and that. But like how you dress is completely different. How you shop is completely different. The things you eat are completely different. You have to talk differently because, you know, people here in, in any part of North America can understand, you know, struggle to understand British dialects sometimes, you know, like, so it's like we have to completely change ourselves in the most fundamental ways. Um, it was just kind of insane for some time. I mean, that was like nine years ago now so now it feels like home um mm-hmm. and i i'm past that point of continually pinching myself about things but it's t- it took a long time yeah lou i'm just going to pause there so ollie and amy are going to do a runner <laughs> i'm having a nightmare <laughs> oh bye ollie and amy Bye. okay see you in a bit it's Before. lovely to meet you i'm looking forward to hearing your story sorry oh, you too. So. Before leaving the UK, then obviously you've had this kind of back and forth going out there, you know, back out again, back out in the winter, mm. you're taking Neil out there. So there's there's quite a lot of kind of movement between, you know, UK lifestyle and North America lifestyle. Or was it mm. was it sorry, you going back out to Alaska or did you go to the Yukon uh, previously as well? Um, to Alaska um we moved to the Yukon later so um yeah that's kind of part of the story but yes we started out in Alaska okay so the, there's this like go, going over coming back again so what was life like in the UK before that final decision to take the plunge to move to the wilderness 
Well, I mean, it was actually at that point, it was probably better than it had ever been, which sounds completely bizarre. Um, it was a really good point. I mean, I was making a living fully from acting at the time. I mean, it wasn't famous. It wasn't glamorous jobs. A lot of it was kind of corporate acting and, you know, touring theatre. But I was actually making a living. I wasn't doing like call centre work or, you know, not working all night in a nightclub or any of those kind of things. Um, and my husband um, or boyfriend at the time, his business had, had folded in the recession. So he hadn't been in a great place. But then a couple of years before before we left, he, he landed like this amazing contract at Sky, Sky TV. Um, and it was the first time he'd ever had a salary. I'd never had a salary. So it was like the first time we were living on this incredible salary. And then when you get a high ranking job at a corporation, like a corporate company like that, you know, you get all these freebies like we we're going to the opera. And it was, it was kind of amazing. So <laughs> ironically, um, <laughs> we were in a really good spot at the point that we decided to leave but I think part of that was sort of realizing it's like at first you're very very excited it's like oh we've done it we've got this you know like we can get a mortgage you know things that you can't do if you're both self-employed um all the time um but also sort of after a bit of that realizing that actually it was quite hollow and we we chose not to have children so it was like you're looking at in your 40s you're looking at like oh well this is what it will be and actually it's fine I can't complain at all life had been much harder than that you know in my 20s but it's like oh okay it's, it's just a little bit hollow it, I, I'm not sure I you know I, I'll be okay but I'm not sure I want this for the rest of my life you know so I suppose that's kind of where we were at yeah, that's a really interesting word, um, you know, using the word hollow in terms of that, you know, a bit of emptiness. And um, I think on previous podcasts, we've talked about that searching for that fulfillment, you know, that, you know, there's something missing, can't quite put your finger on it in life. But obviously, you've had this experience abroad that has obviously really excited you and fascinated you. So, you know, mm. do you think that that was part of your motivation for the change is to go and seek out something to fulfill you a bit more than life in the UK yeah I mean yeah I, th I mean I think that obviously the reasons are quite complex and to be honest with you actually Ali um the reason that I actually moved was that the door opened like I literally just had to go through I don't think mm -hmm. there's a chance in a million that we would be living here if it wasn't for the fact that someone just said do you want to come and live here um because it, it felt like an inc I couldn't even I couldn't conceive of living outside of London let alone <laughs> doing something daring like moving even to France you know let alone like across the world so it was the fact that the opportunity was there and that feeling of like if I don't take it it'll be gone it's not going to come round again you know every couple of years this kind of opportunity but, but I think also part of it was actually having you know struggled for a lot of my life with various you know things and you know where we were living and my work and you know all those kind of things when I actually got to the point where I realized I didn't have to struggle I had a partner that I was happy with and we had a salary coming in a good salary um I had acting work you know not great work but I was all right um I think what I realized was I was sort of looking around at people that were more successful than me so so as into where I might end up and thinking that they don't look happy and I mm -hmm. don't feel that happy um and it, it, I, I think I began to feel a bit trapped when I'd always been striving I thought oh there's there was always something to strive for and particularly with my own career which was acting once you hit 40 as a, as a female actor 
you're heading towards the scrap heap unless unless you're you're pretty well known unless you're a name or unless you've got a very very good agent i'm not saying people never break through but the, if you if you were to look at a graph of how many act, act female actors stop getting work i mean just turn on the mm. telly and you'll see there's not that much work so i think it was also a realization of this is going to be as good as it gets you, mm-hmm. you know and I knew that, you know, I loved like we used to drive down to the Kent coast at the, at the weekends and, you know, often I'd go down to Dartmoor because I'm, you know, I'm from that part of the country and hike and I was loving all those things. But it felt, I suppose, like too rushed and too desperate mm. to just be doing those things at weekends. And I found that I found those things, you know, quite fulfilling. Um, and so I think, yeah, it was a kind of a realisation that probably what life wasn't ever going to be that fulfilling and I was always going to be feeling anxious, you know what I mean, about my work or about something and just sort of saying, thinking, well, I don't really want to go on with this anymore. And, and I think probably the anxiety, uh, you know, that I was feeling was was what gave me the drive to make it happen. I'm, I'm quite an extreme pers- person. I tend to push things. And I think actually it was partly that the door opened, but partly that I have that kind of whirring anxiety inside me and I just had that drive to go yeah I'm going to make this happen so obviously it took a lot of work and a lot lot of effort to be where we are now but um yeah that that was part of the the sort of motivation and the drive for it I think yeah and I guess um you know with your friend saying to you you know hey we've got this opportunity why don't you come out and and do it and also the fact that you've been been over there several times as well had that kind of built confidence even before you got there that you could go out there and make a life in in the wilderness yeah definitely definitely that was key I mean we wouldn't it wouldn't have been possible for us to take the route of just going and getting a buying a property in the wilderness and just living here we did not have the skills um uh, it's a completely different skill set to, to the to you know what I had in in Britain and, and what you would have if you lived in most urban areas and and most rural areas. Let's face it, this is this is a very different ball game, and so you do have to learn how to how to do things and, and how to cope out here. Um, you know, like very basic things, like if you can't use a chainsaw and cut down trees and cut your wood, you were going to freeze to death. So <laughs> no one's going to deliver <laughs> the wood for you. Um, you know, you've got to do it. So, so there are really basic things that you have to have in place before you can move here. And I think. It was having the opportunity to live with people who already had those skills and, and learn from them that opened the gateway for me to feeling that it was it was possible. Yeah, there's there's not much use for a chainsaw in London, is there? Really, when you think about it. <laughs> no, I think you'd find yourself fairly swiftly arrested if you, yeah. um, unless you were a qualified tree surgeon, you'd, you'd be in trouble there. <laughs> so. Um, before you get on that plane then to to head out to Alaska you know leaving your UK life behind what did family and friends think you know were, were there was there support there was there confusion pure worry you know what what was going on with the people closer to you <laughs> um I mean it, it was actually it was a total mix it was a complete mix um so you know I mean I think I'm in, in my family I have a very small family and they're, they're quite elderly now and there, there was a lot of fear and I think probably some anger that I was going and as I said you know my, my family are elderly so it's, it was a selfish move and I have to deal with that fact you know um, and we speak when we can um, but as they're getting older now you know that me being on the other side of the world isn't the best um, mm-hmm. <laughs> best thing you know um, so it was a selfish move on my part amongst my friends I mean I think on the other hand they were also pleased I was so excited and and, you know they were excited for me and I think amongst my friends and people that I knew it was a complete mix of some people just 
saying, oh, my God, I always wanted to live in a cabin in the wilderness. Oh, my God, you're living my dream. Uh Um, And other people who just thought it was weird and they thought I was weird for doing it and they didn't really (laughs) want to talk about it. They were like, oh, you know, so it was a complete I got a complete mixed response. Uh, um, But but a lot of people, yes, were very supportive. um, And but, you know, and other people actually told me sort of more or less not to go. So, you know, it it was a complete mix. The, the people that were telling you not to go, had they been out there or were they just kind of voicing their fears for something that they kind of knew nothing about? Yeah, it was that. I don't, I don't know anyone else who's um, who's been to Alaska. In, well, a couple of people, actually, I do know. But um, no, it wasn't people who'd been here or people who understood the life. Um, I think it was either based on a fear for me because they were very close friends or um, and, and it wasn't very many people that, that were like that, but I did come across it. I think there's also an element um, which other listeners might experience if they've sort of done something different. I, I know this sounds really horrible, but there are some some people out there who don't want you d- living your dream if they're not living theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really horrible thing to say, but I think we've all probably kind of encountered that. It's, it's you know, if you get a good job or something, most people would be really pleased for you, but there might be a couple of people who are a bit snide. Um, and you just need to stay away from those people, you know, simple mm-hmm. as that. It wasn't like my, my good friends, but, you know, um, yeah, you just, um, it, it, you, people are bound to feel like that. Um, and actually it was more men than women, which was interesting. And I think because this kind of lifestyle is often seen as a, a male lifestyle or a sort of male dominated activities, I, I, I wonder, I don't know, it's pure conjecture, but I wonder if there was a little thing with some men who perhaps see themselves as being a bit macho. It was like, oh, what's she doing? <laughs> you know, living the kind of thing that I wanted to do, you know, I don't know. So, uh, but for the most part, actually, it was positive. So I don't want to dwell too much on the, the, the few people that weren't, you know, wholly supportive. Yeah, absolutely. And in previous podcasts, we've kind of focused on, you know, uh, people who are the cheerleaders around you you know who, who were the people that were uh, responsive to what you wanted to do and supportive and you know p- providing you with the confidence so it sounds like you have quite a mixed bag but on the whole you know quite positive yeah um, so what yeah what how, how did you kind of um pack down your life in the UK was there a lot that you had to do practically before you got <laughs> on the plane over to Africa? yeah 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 it was it was it was quite it was quite the thing so yeah we we decided obviously we're going to rent out our property in london because that that would give us enough money to to exist on over here so there was sort of sorting all of that out we'd never done that before so you know that was a kind of a thing dealing with the estate agents and then all our staff um and i think initially we in the first year we sort of tried to ship as much as we could we left everything in the house furniture wise for the tenants so that was fine um and then we tried to sort of leave stuff with family and, and you know, friends where we could. That actually changed. Once we realised we were staying, we had to get rid of all that. But what I remember, my most sort of <laughs> poignant memory, is um, the uh, van from a local charity shop. I don't remember which one, but they, they did pickups. So basically just arriving and taking nearly all of our stuff away. We just had to just give it away. Because what, you know, like things like, things that you do like, I don't like it you don't throw stationery away do you You keep it in case you need it you want to print something out but if you know you're leaving the country you know you're never going to use that stationery my husband for some reason had accumulated loads of socks and pants and I was like Neil there's three drawers of socks and pants you know we're not giving these to my mum or a friend they're going to the charity shop um but just to make things really complicated 
we decided to get married in the month before months before we left um, yeah. uh, which like then threw another place manner in the works but we were engaged it's just we kind of moved quite slowly we're moving quite slowly towards that point of marriage but um actually someone pointed out to me and said look if you guys go to alaska you're just disappearing off there and you're you're just you're not related to each other in any way legally mm-hmm you need to do this now so it in the last minute we tried to throw together a wedding which just yeah just made everything more difficult than it needed to be but a very small wedding you know we didn't try and plan a big wedding or a church wedding obviously but so yeah it was it was yeah that was in before we left you know sort of initially to come and and stay with our our friends out there in the bush yeah it it was quite a quite a hectic time Wow, a wedding and moving to the other side of the world in in that short space. Yeah. Well done, what an achievement! <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, what, what about the um, the practicalities? Do you have to have visas and stuff for for going to live over there, or, or was it different because you were actually going over to work? What was the situation? Um, in um, so so, I'll have to kind of fast forward the story quite uh, quite a bit to get to the visa point. But when we went to Alaska, we just went. So the truthful answer is, yes, you do. We weren't actually working. We weren't being paid okay. um, in, in any respect by, by these people. Um, so we just went to America. Um, uh, but we're now in Canada. And sort of part of our journey, which has got multiple <laughs> steps in between this, was when we when we knew we actually wanted to live here as opposed to coming here for a year. When I say here, I mean, you know, in the bush, we made the decision that we wanted to come into Canada and we wanted to do everything properly and officially. Mm. Um, and so, so yes, you do need a visa to be in Canada. For uh, you, you can get a six-month tourist visa if you just want to come mm-hmm. on holiday. And as long as you're not working or doing anything, you know, you shouldn't be. You can extend that. Um, so when we were first looking at moving over here, they very kindly extended that for us so we could stay a bit longer. So, but if you want to live in Canada, you have to have a visa. And obviously, if you want to live in Alaska, you have to have that U.S. green card, which is you know mm. extremely difficult to get. Yeah. So. You mentioned the stepping stones then between Alaska and the Yukon where you are living now in the bush. So it'd be great to yes. go through that in terms of obviously, you know, I've just got this picture of, you know, you and Neil getting on the plane. <laughs> Neil's pants and socks are now well behind somewhere in a London charity shop. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're getting off with no stationery. Um, <laughs> so you land in Alaska and so what, what's the first few weeks like when you arrive? Was it was it an assault on the senses or did you feel quite comfortable with it because you've been out there before and you knew what to expect? Um, when we first first arrived, um, so when we were living with the couple um, there in Alaska, um, yeah, I had been there you know, before and I'd been going there for some years then. So we were sort of 12 years after the, the time I'd first traveled to Alaska so I had got used to some of it as I said it was still kind of crazy and mad and exciting and you know wonderful but I was a little bit used to some of it uh for Neil it was I think just a complete head fuck if I'm, <laughs> if I'm honest with you I mean he was enjoying it but he was totally out of his depths um so so yeah you know there was a lot that as I said, everything was different from the way, you know, like even like shopping, you know, in Britain, I was used to going down the shops most days for something or another and then maybe doing a big shot once a week. Like here you do a big shot once a year. <laughs> you know, that's it. You've got to get everything then. You know, it's uh, it, 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 so we had to do our big shop before we came in. We met these people in Fairbanks and they sort of drove us to the big store. And so, it's you know, yeah, it was it was quite overwhelming when we first arrived. 
And tell tell us a bit about Neil. Like, you know, you you've had the, you've had the childhood dream, and and you've gone out and back and out and back. And you know, he's gone out there and come back, and you've both gone out there together. You know, how how did he end up leaving his his uh, job that he had with Sky? Then did you have to convince him quite a bit, or? You know how how did that work? Because I've had yes. experience with you know with with Amy. I guess we both have in terms of you know I'll I'll have a crazy idea and I'll approach her and I'll tell her all the reasons why we should do this and then she just goes along with it. I think most of the time and then she decides <laughs> that she says, "Hey, I've got this idea. Why don't we you know give up renting the flat? We can live in a static caravan on on my mum's farm." And I'm like, "Hell no, we're not doing that." And then a few months later, we're living in yeah. a static caravan. You know so. The kind of experience in terms of ne- ne- let's call yeah. it partner negotiation how did that work with Neil <laughs> um when we we first got the offer um you know obviously I said we just need some time to think about it so I said to him that we've got this offer what do you want to do it's an amazing opportunity so okay I want to think about it and then being Neil he uh, just thought about it and thought about it thought it was like six <laughs> months later I'm like okay are you still thinking about it are we going or not you know and then like nine months later okay are you thinking about it? And in the end, I sort of nailed him and I said, look, what do you want to do? And he said, I don't want to go. And, um, and I just, I said to him, you're a fucking moron. I just (laughs) told him straight, you are a fucking, we will never get this chance in our lives. Again, this is a life changing opportunity and you're not going to go because what, you know what I mean? Um, so that, that was the kind of starting point of our, (laughs) um, negotiation, shall we call it, um, about it. But I think the, the thing was, we, I knew he wasn't, he was getting fed up with his job. Like he'd worked for himself all his life. He'd always run his own business. And then it went to the wall, as I mentioned before, and he was then yeah. in the salary job, which was amazing. But he was commuting, cycling on a bike two hours each way. So four hours of commuting every day. Yeah. I mean, he chose to cycle, obviously, but it was actually quicker than going by train because the Sky Place is quite a way out of London. Um, and he wasn't used to not being his own boss. So he'd got so much from it, but I know he was starting to get really frustrated and he was starting to whinge. And he was saying to me, he'd already said, I don't want to stay in this role. You know, I might try and move to another organization or whatever. So I'm like, look, you're telling me you're going to change your job. Why don't we just do this now? And what actually changed it, I think, was when I, when I called him a fucking moron, it woke him up a bit. But, um, was he, he, what he told me, which I didn't know, was that when his father was young, his father had had the opportunity to go and live in Patagonia and had turned it down and regretted it for the rest of his life oh. and had told Neil about this. And I think Neil suddenly had this kind of light bulb moment of like, oh, my God, this won't come round again. And if I, I might regret this forever. And the yeah. stakes were low. You know, we had a by that point, we'd left the council flat, you know, it was sort of many years after that. And we actually had a house in London, a little house. It's like we can rent this out. You know, we're not going to go under while we're while we're away. We have got nothing to lose. If you, if you're going to leave your job anyway and move on, my acting work, you know, it was sort of it's all just like you know, one job this week, another job the next. You don't plan it, so I could just go. That was no big deal. I was like, what? What on earth? We got no kids. Why are we? Why aren't we doing this? You know? Yeah. I guess with um, the house in London, then you've almost got a bit of a safety net, haven't you? And then career wise, you've also got a safety net because you're both experiencing what you do and you can always go back and jump into something else if you wanted to. So was that a big part of the decision making in the end then, the fact that you knew you had a bit of safety and security? Um, In terms of career, I didn't have any. I mean, acting is the most insecure career ever and I had never had any 
I didn't know that I would earn money from one week to the next. So the point oh, okay. was actually I was used to having no safety net. So that didn't bother mm-hmm. me at all. Um, with Neil, he met, spent a long, long time unemployed. So he didn't, you know, there was no guarantee he would get back into work. But, you know, we were kind of, I was used to living with that, that insecurity. Actually, he wasn't. And I kind of made him, <laughs> I just said, well, we're going to live with it. Um, in terms of the um, financial security with the house, that made a difference and it didn't in the sense that I had a council flat. So this is like gold dust. This doesn't happen anymore. But I had that for uh, not when I first moved to London, but I got one, I think, in my mid 20s. And so I you you, they can't they're not going to kick you off. So all I would need to do would be to rent it to a friend. So, um, yeah, probably that had always been a factor in my willingness to just spend money or, you know, to spend everything I had coming in on going to Alaska. Do, Do you know what I'm saying? So the housing security wasn't new to me, but but I would agree with you that having some kind of security in your home, whether that's a housing association flat or your own house or whatever, is helpful. Um, however, you know, going back to, you know, before the council flat, when I was paying 50 quid a week to live in a tiny room in a house in Brixton, um, I could just walk away from that. You know, everything I owned fitted into my Vauxhall Nova and there was a freedom in that, too. So I suppose yeah. what I'm thinking about for listeners who might be in different situations is to say there's very often a way it's about how you look at it rather than, you know, what it actually is. Unless you will say like up to your ears in debt and you, you know what I mean? There might be times when you really shouldn't just go off and abandon things but very often you can walk away easier than you think yeah I guess there's always lots of reasons to do something and but then you know depending on your mindset there could be a lot of reasons not to do it but so I guess you know what I'm hearing you know with with you and and with Neil in the end is that you you kind of both were like well you know what have we got to lose let's go and do it um you know you can always come back if it doesn't work out so just moving on then from you know when you got when you got to Alaska initially, what was the pathway then for you to end up in the Yukon bush? What, you know, how did you get there? What was the journey? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so again, that that was a long journey, which I'll try not to give you too much detail about. But what happened was we kind of realized we wanted to be in the bush and we wanted to try and really make a go of it. We didn't at any point go, right, we are going to live in the bush. Not not at this stage. We were like, oh, we want to give it another year. We want to try it. Keep trying, if you know what I mean. We were very unplanned in the way that we did it. Um, but we did realize that living in America with no visas and all that, it just it wasn't, it was a road to nowhere, really, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we had, um, through sort of that experience, met a couple who lived in the wilderness in Canada on, on the Yukon River. And um, they needed dog sitters. It was that random. So we were like, <laughs> okay, great. Well, we'll come and <laughs> we'll come to you <laughs> this winter. Um, and you know, again, they were way out in the bush, so they weren't running a tour operation or, or anything. You know, their, their business was sort of different to that. But um, we we kind of looked after their dogs, and then and then through that, there was a abandoned. No, it wasn't abandoned cabin. We thought it was abandoned. There was a cabin a few miles away from them, just way out, totally overgrown in the bush. And they were like, oh, you could go and live there. Um, no one's there anymore. And so so then we moved there uh, uh, in February at minus 50 Celsius and got oh there to discover goodness. that there were gaps between the log walls so big. Like I was just stuffing them with newspaper to keep the cold out. So it was, it, I mean, it was kind of wonderful and, and sort of miserable all at the same time. It was like I can remember we slept in the bed with like literally 
our friend had lent us all this stuff like because we had nothing remember we came with two suitcases we didn't have a van load of stuff yeah. or anything you know so we didn't have sleeping bags or anything I think by then someone had given us parkers and we used to sleep with everything sort of piled on on the bed like um it, it was so cold I actually burnt my hands on the cutlery in the morning going down to make a cup of coffee in this cabinet it got the, the cutlery got down to minus 50 and I picked up a spoon and burnt my hands it's like that that's how cold it was oh my um, so like obviously we weren't going to stay there and let alone we were actually squatting. It turns out that people, people did own the cabin and they didn't want us there. So we had to move on from there. Um, and then it's all just a random chain. We met a gold miner not far from, from there. Um, and he wanted someone to look after the equipment on his mine over the winter whilst he was away. So they only mine in the summer here because it's, it's too cold in the winter. The, gold's frozen, uh, the ground is frozen. Um, and he had a little cabin on the land. So we spent a winter in in that little cabin you know just sort of on his mind in in the middle of nowhere again just you know kind of completely cut off um and we were actually going to carry on with that because that that worked with him and with our tourist visa of six months that kind of worked so our plan then became we'll go back to britain in the summers work as hard as we can um live, live somewhere really cheap keep the house rented out so we're getting a rental income from that and then go back in the winters and and live in this little gold mine and just kind of be there. And, that, you know, that would be amazing. But then the second winter we were going to do that, it turns out his situation changed. The gold miner's situation changed and he was going to need to be in that cabin. So there was nowhere for us to go. And so what happened, and this must have been about 2015, was we were sat, we had a, we were um, in a flat in Woolwich in a tower block. I remember this little council flat. And we were like we got them I got the email that we couldn't go back to the gold mine we had nowhere to stay there and I was just like that's it we've hit the end of the road now this is the end of all our leads we've got nowhere to to go you know to go back to we're not going to make it happen um and at that point we were we were homeless in Britain not destitute at all because we had mm-hmm. rental income coming in but we were homeless Neil had no work I had no work we were staying on friends floors literally from Cornwall to Manchester um, we ended up in this council flat in in Woolwich, um, and it, we were, you know, and it was it was a really horrible, horrible position. It's like we've got nowhere to go back to in the bush where we want to live. We've got nowhere to live here. Our house is rented out on contract for the rest of the year. We can't even move back in legally if we want to. We're stuck in this mm-hmm. tiny little flat that we've managed to get up, get into, and you know, it was it was it was a really horrible time, and and I remembered that uh, of someone we've met here, the people we dog sat for told us that there was a property for sale right on the Yukon River um but it was too expensive there was no way we could afford it so I'd just kind of forgotten about it and and I just kind of remembered it and I and I, and I knew it had been on the market for a long time no one wanted to buy it because it was too remote um uh and it was overpriced and I thought well why don't we just like make a really low offer and see if she's accept, accepts it because she's been trying to sell it for a couple of years you know um this but this person we didn't know them um, and for some reason, I looked at the two things happened. One was my husband landed an amazing short contract with Rolls Royce paying like an enormous amount of money. So that kind of changed <laughs> our mentality immediately. We're like, excellent. Uh, or not enormous, amount, but in our terms, enormous. Sorry, obviously, it wasn't like, you know, hundreds of thousands or anything. It was a lot of money. Uh, and I looked at the Canadian exchange rate and it incredibly it had gone to two dollars to the pound, which has never happened since. I don't know. I don't remember what was going on economically, but I was like, whatever we pay for this property, we're getting it half price. Uh-huh. We just need to do this. Um, and I, I had a, a relative who was willing to lend us some money. 
And so it's like the kind of stars aligned. I got in touch with this person and, and just made a really low offer on the property. And, and she said yes. And it's like, okay, that's it. <laughs> We're just going to buy it. And we hadn't seen it. We'd, we'd driven along the Yukon River on a snow machine um, one winter and we'd passed it. So I sort of vaguely knew where it was and I'd seen that there was a cabin there. But we hadn't come up onto the land. We hadn't been in the house or anything. We just, it was, it was the only place for sale. Um, I mean, I suppose one thing to explain to listeners is there's very, very little land for sale around here on, on the Yukon all through, you know, Canada and Alaska. It's um, either national park um, or First Nation land or native corporation land um, or what's known as Queensland here in, in, in Canada, which is sort of government owned land. Like there are very few privately titled properties, like literally a handful. So it was an incredible uh, incredibly rare opportunity um, and, and and that's it and so, so that's what kind of it was sort of desperation really that, that brought us here with a, just some stars align, aligning you know the currency rate just suddenly going mad and and Neil just suddenly you know from completely unemployed sitting around and actually being very fractious and very upset it was a really awful summer we were arguing with each other we you know we had no money we didn't know what to do um, to just everything kind of changed in the space of two days. It was sort of incredible, as it can sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, the, the woman accepted our offer. Um, and I can remember we, we had to use a lawyer in Whitehorse, the Yukon capital, to, you know, buy the property. And uh, the lawyers were like, oh, there could be asbestos here. No one's looked at it. You know, we don't know how habitable the buildings are. And we were just like, we don't care. We don't care. We don't care. We've got a tent. We just need somewhere to live. It does not matter. Like, I couldn't explain. It's like, I don't care about asbestos or this or that. You know, just just get the contract sorted, please. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's 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 how it kind of happened um so it's like i know for anyone listening it's like it's a hard thing to replicate because there were a lot of factors that just happened that were random um but i suppose the thing that you can replicate is if you want something if you become clear about what it is that you want in this world often if you just keep going at it keep going at it you just get Mm -hmm. little breaks and it it happens i think the trick is to just stay focused on it yeah, that's quite evident from talking to you in terms of, you know, you, you've you got this vision. And even though, you know, all these barriers and hurdles turned up and, you know, life took a wrong a kind of wrong turn when you came back to the UK, you've ended up living <laughs> the, the dream life that you wanted to live. So the property that you're in now, is, is that's the one that you're talking about. That's the one that you bought that you'd never even been in, been into. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that, that yeah. that's where I I am now yeah that's it fantastic so can you give people a bit of an idea of um well the remoteness of it really so like where are your nearest neighbors how do you get there how do you travel around where's your nearest shop the hospital you know practicality (laughs) yeah (laughs) sure so so we're, we're right on the banks of the Yukon River um our nearest uh people are uh, so there's no road into here, so we can only travel on the river. There's no like track or anything out through the woods. So the river is our only mode of transport. Um, and at two times of the year for a number of weeks or months, we can't travel because uh, when the river's either freezing or as it is in the process of doing at the minute, breaking up. So those shoulder seasons between summer and winter, it's not safe to, to put 
go by snow machine and obviously you can't get a boat in. So, uh, so we're actually cut off for somewhere between like two and three months of the year. So quite a long time in total. Um, and our nearest neighbours are actually, there's a couple who live about 20 miles downstream from us. Um, so they would be the nearest people. Um, and then the nearest town is uh, Dawson City, which is, uh, I say city, there's like, by British standards, <laughs> we're talking a very small village, like 2,000 people there, but it is, it is actually a city. Um, and that's, if you go downstream, uh, sorry, upstream to Dawson, it's 40 miles upstream. Um, we can't always go that way because sometimes the ice in the winter is too rough. So often we have to go down to where the other people are and there's a kind of mining track there which which joins a what is a road in the summer um and that's like so that's an 80 mile route which we often have to take to get into town um and in town so there's obviously there's nothing here there's no little tea shop no pub no takeaways <laughs> like nothing <laughs> no delivery none of the stuff you want none of it here um and there's nothing where the other couple live uh uh, so the nearest place is Dawson, um, which, you know, it has it has some really great pubs, actually. Um, and there's a general store there and a hardware store. Um, and, and there's a hospital there, a small hospital, which is useful. But for a lot of stuff you need, you have to go to the Yukon capital, which is Whitehorse, which is a, a sort of, you know, a city by sort of a small city by British standards. Um and, you know, that's where you could get like dentists and, you know, to superstores and, you know, mechanics and, you know, all that other kind of things that you might or buy big pieces of equipment, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that is, I think it's 300 miles by road from here. I think I've got that right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of where we are. That's, that's yeah, we don't have facilities nearby, unfortunately. Yeah. And but is that that's part of the allure for you, is it that, you know, living in the bush and, and the remoteness of it all? Is that something you enjoy? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be a wilderness if we had facilities nearby. It, I mean, you, yeah. you know, you have small, small bush communities here and we're quite unusual in that we live right out on our own. There are other people that do live out on their own, obviously. Um but you know you have like flying communities like say old crow is a is a little flying village that's in the yukon to you know to the north of here but that's that's a village and you can't drive in but you but it, it's an actual village with facilities and we're just sort of here by ourselves yeah um and obviously yes that is the allure is, is to be completely out by yourselves yeah okay um let's talk about the the kind of practicalities for um, like heating, lighting, water and internet. What, what do you do um, for those hmm. things? Well, I guess the first one to explain is the internet, because um, that, obviously that's the one I'm using right now. Um, so we've got a satellite internet connection. Um, so we've got a big dish that's it's out on the bank there that hits a satellite. Um, and it's not a great internet connection, but equally it's not terrible. Some, sometimes it's worse than others, but as you can hear, we're, we're sort of chatting away on Skype here. So, so that's good. Um, and that's kind of, that's been a bit of a lifesaver really. So I think when we first moved here, I had this sort of idea that it didn't matter about the internet. And in fact, we didn't, we had it when we were with the couple in Alaska, but when we first moved here, we didn't have it. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's fine. I don't need it. Actually, I think that would get a bit old after a few years, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? And um, once these sort of amazing excitement of being in the wilderness wears off, it's like, actually, you do want to know that your family are all right. 
Um, yeah. You do need to do banking. I've just spent the past week trying to get my taxes into the CRA. <laughs> you know, um, those things don't go away because you move to the bush and I have to do taxes in Britain and Canada, which is like <laughs> just oh, great fun, as you can imagine. So that part of life, you know, it, it doesn't go away. So you, so it's good to be able to deal with it. And the other great thing is that my husband has set up a, a, a business, a remote working consultancy, um, which is which has been fantastic. So the internet has been an amazing enabler for us and everyone apart from one person I know um, in the bush uh, has it. So it's, it is actually a, modern, a part of modern bush life in a way that maybe two-way radio would have been before, you know. Um, so we've got that. Um, and in terms of fuel, basically we have wood and we have gas, petrol. Um, those are our two forms of fuel. So the, the cabin is uh, heated with, we've got a, a, what we call a barrel stove. So it's, uh, um, they're quite common here. It's like a 50 gallon oil drum that's converted into a wood stove. So that's our main form of heating in the winter. And there's a flat plate welded in the top. Um, so we cook on that in the winter as well. And then as well as that, we've got this gorgeous, I wish I wish I could show you actually, Ali, like this incredible like 1970s wood cooking range, um, which is what we cook on in the summer um, or in, in the shoulder season. And it's just like this beautiful old sort of range with, well, very faded now chrome and it has a little wood box. So again, that's a wood generated thing. Um, and then for power, we don't use much. We we run a little generator, a Honda thousand, and we run that most days for maybe an hour or two uh, to power the modem for the internet. And then while we're running that, we just charge our computers and Kindles and you know whatever else headlamps, uh, which we need a lot here. We charge charge them while it's running. But we're we're north facing and we're in a kind of steep valley. We've got mountains behind us. So at the minute, the way the technology is with solar. Uh, and the expense of it here, it's not worth us trying to convert to solar yet. We sort of did the maths of it. Um, the thing is, we're living in the far north is you can't get stuff cheaply. So like friends in Britain are like, yeah, but what about this? What about this? It's like, yeah, you can get that in Britain. We, we can't get, we can't get deliveries from Amazon a lot mm. of the time and eBay a lot of the time. You know? um, we don't, we don't have access to it. So I'm waiting for, the, hopefully the technology will step up enough that we can, you know, have like less light and still power things. But at the minute it's financially not viable. Um, so for lighting, we, if we have 24 hour daylight almost now, so we don't need any lighting at all in the summer, <laughs> um, we're, we're nearly at that point now, we're not there yet. Um, in the winter on the opposite, we get like five hours of daylight, uh, during the day. So you do need a lot of lighting. Um, um, and it's a kind of twilight. The sun doesn't come up here between like October and, and March, sort of mid-October, mid-March, we don't get the sun. You do get a kind of twilight here. But it's literally pitch black at 11 in the morning and pitch black at five by five in the evening, if not sort of four. You know, it's it's dark here. Um, mm -hmm. So we use kerosene lanterns, actually, and headlamps, uh, which are rechargeable. So we're not. So at first we have batteries um, and you, my God, you, you whip through them. So now we've got rechargeable. And, and that's what that's what we use for lighting. And around where the, the kitchen area and the, where we work on the computers, we did this year by like little cheap strips um, on eBay of, of LED lighting. And in the winter, when we take the battery out of the boat, we bring it in and then we run the LEDs off of that battery just in the kind of work areas because it's not a particularly pleasant light. But, you know, you could kind of need it a little bit. So so that's our lighting. Um, was the, So what was it? Heating, lighting. And I think, did you ask about water? I think that's the other yeah, kind of water as well. staple. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, so we've got no plumbing here at all. Um, we literally just get buckets of water from the creek. <laughs> and in the winter, we put them in the sled and so by the snow machine. You've got to keep it all inside because obviously it freezes outside. So we keep, we've always got a stack of buckets of water in here. Um, and in the summer, we have to carry it up by hand. But last year, we did actually invest in a very cheap water pump um, for, for from the creek because it, we tried to grow a little garden and it was just doing our backs in carrying all the water. Like, um, mm. So we bought a little little cheap water pumps we could pump water up and then literally it rained all summer after oh. the day we managed to collect the water from the post office and so we haven't used it <laughs> but we might need it this summer so 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 yeah everything is from buckets of water and and we, we filter the water here that we drink because i've had giardiosis many times um it, it the water here is not although people might go oh, it's pure it's clear yeah it looks pure and clear but you know um it is it is raging with beaver fever um or you know giardiosis right. Um, so I, I've been sick on it so many times. I know I just filter everything. Yeah. So you've been there how many years now? Is it nine? We 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 moved to Alaska in the summer of 2012. So that was when the sort of journey itself started. Um, and we we moved into this property itself in 2016. So what's that like? Five years. Yeah. And I think you said um, earlier on that it, it's it kind of feels like home now. Do you feel? Do you feel like you are kind of part of the the community and do, do you feel like a sense of belonging where you are now? Um, yes. I mean, in terms of community, we're, we're on our own. <laughs> yeah. So there is a community. There's a bush community of the people that live on the river and we are most definitely part of that but you know like as I said the nearest people are 20 miles away and then we've got friends after that that are 50 miles you know that's 30 miles beyond them um, and then you know we've still got friends down in Alaska on the other side of the border so it's a very stretched out community um, what's been really nice is over the past few years as we've got we've got better snow machines and more adept at traveling and, and found places to stay in, to stay in Dawson we, we've spent a bit more time in Dawson City and we've got to know people there which has been really nice so we're beginning to feel part of that community as well but I think up until the past sort of year or so the only people we met were people that came out to the bush which is like they're the most amazing people and wonderful people to meet but I was sort of missing out a bit on the community of getting to know people in Dawson but sort of slowly we're, we're, we're getting to know people. Oh, that's good to hear. I think, you know, we are we are quite sociable creatures as humans, aren't we? And whilst we might not like our solitude, mm. it is also nice to, to meet new people and make new relationships. Just in terms of like living in the Yukon, living in the bush, um, you mentioned earlier about the, the skill sets required and knowing how to use a chainsaw properly um, and just kind of giving people the, you know, I'm sure people realise what Alaska's like, what, what the Yukon is like from perhaps things they've seen on the TV and it's described as wild, mountainous, sparsely populated. But what challenges has that brought to your front door in terms of the skill sets you need, the safety mm -hmm. concerns, the solitude, wild animals? You know, what kind of things do you have to deal mm -hmm. with day to day that that might be seen as huge challenges over here? Yeah, I mean, God, where to start with that, actually? Um, a lot. And sometimes, it, certainly when we first lived here, it felt like every day was just sort of like a rolling mass of danger and challenge. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, obviously, we got better. But I mean, the issue is that here, we, we are not, although I, you know, I said there is a hospital in 
40 miles away in Dawson, we can't get there in an emergency. You know, sometimes it takes us nine hours to get to Dawson. Sometimes we can't get there at all. So it would require being medevac by helicopter. So essentially, if, say, we had an accident with a chainsaw, I think the chances of us surviving would be very, very, you know, whoever. It would be very small. So so we, we try to be very, very careful with what we're doing because we know that by the time you'd got the internet on, sent, you know, tried to get hold of yeah. someone, tried to get a helicopter here, get picked up, get, you know, you may not survive that. So we're very, very careful. But most of the things we need to do are, are dangerous. Um, but, you know, obviously not all of them, but a lot of them are just dangerous. You know, you're dealing with fire all the time. All, mm. all, like every day you're dealing with, fire, even the summer to make a fire to cook on, you're dealing with gasoline all of the time, you know, you're always filling the boat, filling the snow machines, you know, whatever. Um, we're chainsawing nearly, you know, most days, particularly if, if we're building something. So, you know, you've got the inherent danger of this tool, which this piece of equipment that, that is, is lethal. You've got the danger of working with, like we built a workshop, working with logs, which are heavy, which fall, you know, which can kill you. And, and of course, the danger of felling the trees from which we get the logs, <laughs> you know, you've got yeah. to cut them down. They fall down with a slam. They don't always go in the direction that, that you wanted them to. So I think around tree felling, chainsaws, logs is our sort of main danger. Um, and also, you know, there, there are dangerous animals here. Uh, you know, we're always in the summer, we're always aware of bears. We always carry bear spray, even at, at the edge of the yard, because they come right up into the yard. Um, and if we're going up in the hills where there's grizzlies, we usually carry a rifle. Um, so you have to be aware, you know, I mean, I mean, they come really close. I remember one year, one um, summer, I think it was a couple of years ago, I was putting the water filter away for the, for the night, draining it by the window. And I look up and there's a bear right at the window and it's got its paws around the back porch and it's actually leaning against the back porch, scratching its back. Like, so I can just see the back of it and it's kind of doing this like jungle book kind of thing on the back of the, the porch to get an itch in its back. I mean, literally five feet from where I'm, where I'm standing, wow. you know? Um, so it's very wild. The animals out there don't know that this is our property until they sort of come right up. But a lot of the animals here aren't, you know, used to humans, if you know what I mean. But essentially, this is just another piece of wilderness. Like we had wolves bring down a caribou just at the edge of the yard. It was pitch black in the winter. And we, we didn't know what the hell it was. We were terrified because we just couldn't work out what all this snarling and noise was. And it was a pack of wolves, like right at the edge of the yard, <laughs> attacking a caribou. Like, um, you know, it really is wild here. I mean, there's no actual danger from wolves, but but there certainly is from bears. Um, and I think. Like in terms of skills, yeah, there's a lot to learn and we're learning it all from scratch. So there's there's obviously chainsawing, which is the most dangerous. We're dealing with guns. We hunt here. Um, so there's, there's bear defense, the bear defense element of guns. And there's also actual hunting. Um, so that's, you know, that's a very dangerous thing um just handling the guns and also dealing with a wild animal that you might have shot and you have people get hurt very often in hunting situations so that's another um situation with like high risk for us um and i think the main risk as well comes from being on the snow machines in winter and putting trail in because where we are um we have to put our trail in on the yukon river so what i mean by that is when it freezes um you know the ice kind of freezes in the, in the autumn and then it kind of it tends to jumble up quite often it doesn't just freeze flat you know the ice kind of sort of gets mashed together uh -huh. so you've got a very rough kind of environment out there you don't just drive out on it quite often you have to go out there with a big maul axe and beat it down and try and get the machine over it and beat in trails and sometimes you have to use a chainsaw to cut the ice out you know it, it can be very rough 
Um, another place it's it's you know it can be flat and you can just drive, but there's always the inherent risk that you're going to go through the river, and it does happen to people, and it, it happened to us, but we were luckily in a shallow spot. So you know, obviously you make the best judgment you can about where it's safe to go and we test it with an axe before we go over it try and check it's like five inches thick before we drive on it but you know that is an inherently dangerous thing to do and people do go through the ice and people do die so you know there, there is a there's a lot of risk here so part of the skill is the important skill for us is learning to read the ice and read the river and you know sort of trying to make it a, a, a safe assessment of what's going on out there before we before we try and drive onto it I guess in a nutshell, um, you know, day to day, you're the pair of you are looking out for each other and making sure that you stay alive while still living a really enjoyable life out there in the bush. And, you know, mm-hmm. you've, you've kind of answered, um, you know, our, our questions and kind of given us the answers that we kind of expected to hear in terms of the nece- necessity to hunt, the necessity to, you know, cut the trails and be really aware of your surroundings and, and have the skill set to deal with that safely and not and not just be kind of a gung-ho approach. It sounds like you're really taking a measured approach. Uh, and I know you've been there for some time, but it still sounds like you're really respectful of the environment and and keeping each other safe. You, you know, it's, it's a really important, it's a really interesting point to me that I was much more gung-ho before I moved here. Like, um, you know, I would just kind of, you know, I'd love to like ride my bike down really steep, steep slopes and ski down, you know, like anything that I thought was going to be a bit challenging, give it a go, like have the dog sled, you know, at full speed. Since I've lived here, like we've got where the ramp down to the river and occasionally I'll go out on skis, not often, it's not really a great environment for it, but like occasionally I'll get the skis out and I will walk down that ramp, which before I would have taken great joy in like her down but I, I'm not going to risk breaking my ankle down it's actually made me much more safety conscious and there, there was one thing that you mentioned actually I've remembered in the question where you talked about solitude um uh, and what the challenge was around that and I actually I didn't touch on that point and I'd, I'd just like to uh, really briefly because you know luckily there, there is two of us here most of the time not all of the time often one of us is by ourselves but you know the other person is kind of there um but occasionally yes it is lonely and I, I think you're right when you said we are social creatures. So it's been important to us to sort of maintain links with the other people on the river and also to get to know people in town. But the other thing, of course, is social media, which I know it can be a curse and, you know, it's a sort of double-edged sword social media, but it's how, I, you know, I came in touch with you, two marvellous women there, you know. Um, so that has actually been a great thing for us to just to just be able to go on to social media and to email friends um, and something that, you know, kind of wouldn't have had in the old days. And, and that's kind of brought us sort of a new element, I think, to living in the bush over the last few years, which has just been fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned social media because obviously that's something we always kind of wrap up on in terms of, um, you know, where can people follow you? And there, there's still more questions that I want to ask you. So, you know, don't feel like I'm trying to cut the interview now. <laughs> we could probably talk to you for another hour and maybe we'll come back to you at another time because you know the story's fascinating but yeah we came across you on Instagram and I can't remember how I don't know maybe it was recommended um like sometimes it does weirdly on on your news feeds and some of the pictures that you're posting on there about the Yukon it's like wow this is really bloody cool and I think part of us loves to live you know other people's lifestyles vicariously don't we it's like wow that looks so amazing that looks so cool 
And then like talking to you tonight, you hear the reality of what it really means to live a lifestyle in the bush. So you have these amazing pictures, but behind that, there are so many challenges and, and things that you need to think about if you do want to go and live that that life out there. But I just want to mention, actually, or ask, um, you posted a picture recently of a cake. Was that your 50th birthday cake? <laughs> No, no, it was our wedding anniversary cake. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's one, one of the things that I, I don't cook at all, but um, Neil Neil likes to cook and he likes to bake and, and we have no way of no oven here. The, the cooking range that we have, the oven's kind of a bit rusted out. So anything we try and bake is always this ridiculous process of trial and error and things either being undercooked or burnt or usually a combination of the both. And and that was one of the um, that, that was one of the best <laughs> most uh, picturesque attempts I think if anybody saw that yeah <laughs> yeah and and your Instagram handle is it Yukon Bush Life yeah Yukon Bush Life all one word we're on Instagram and Facebook yeah yeah so I think yeah I mean I love the picture of the cake because you know in between all these amazing pictures of the wilderness and you've been talking recently about the breakup of the river and how dicey that might be and stuff and then there's there's this really real picture of this cake I'm going to spoil the image but you know go on there and have a look because what what I love and Amy is the same you know we love real Instagram feeds we we you know the people that we follow and and you know people's lives that we follow it's like they they share the reality of things and I think the cake is a really good reality that people should go and have a look at um but yeah just just thank you to um what, what do you think the, in terms of life in the Yukon, what do you think, if, if you could name just one, what would the biggest challenge be that you've overcome so far? That's a really hard question to, to answer. Um, uh, cause there, cause there were so many and if I'm to, if I'm to be honest, actually, I won't go into this. It's actually dealing with bureaucracy and government, and that's it's absolutely impossible out here. Like my, my greatest challenge, number one, is the two-step telephone authentication system that everywhere has adopted, in the with the idea that there's nobody in the world anymore without a telephone. Well, we don't have a telephone. We've only got Skype. So yeah, banking, uh-huh. tax, everything. This is actually one of my great PayPal. None of this works for me anymore. So that's actually like a major challenge, but not the most interesting. I think the to to not go into one particular instant, but to, the greatest challenge is actually that you can't ever turn it off. Like times in London when you, you know, I do like really hard day at this or that. And I just think, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to get a takeaway now and bottle of wine. And I'm going to sit and watch telly. And, you know, that's it. You know, or, you know, it's that kind of I'm just going to get the bus home feeling. We can never just get the bus home. We can never even just call a cab. We, you know, we can do a nine hour journey back from Dawson at 30, 40 below. And then we get here. The house is completely frozen down solid. We've got to get a fire going. We've then got to go down to the creek, bust out a water hole um, because it'll be frozen over. We try and keep it open, but it'll froze. We've got to bust out ice in the creek, fill buckets of water, bring them back. You know, it's like there's no no point of even when we're home just going, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just get a takeaway and relax tonight. Um, And there are times, I think, when I've wanted to just turn it off. And and I think that's been a challenge, probably very similar to having a small child. In fact, thinking of Ollie here, I'm sure there must be times just wish you could just turn him off yeah. put him in the cupboard Send him back. <laughs> so, it's not me. yeah exactly um, so and I'm sure you found ways around it and, and it is just that thing if you just have to you can ha- have a little you know at the beginning often we'd have like little tantrums about it like one of us would be like shouting or crying like no I don't want to and then, you, then there's nothing you just stop 
shouting or crying and then you have to do it because you can't there's no one listening there's not going to change you can't phone anyone you know you can't it just you just have to then get on and do it so I think that's something we've got better at as time has gone on and just on the flip side of that you know uh, yeah and I you know what I'm hearing from the start of this conversation is so many challenges that you've you've single-handedly and as a couple embraced and you know kicked kicked ass with as well but what what's the best thing about the move that you think you've made it's it's the it's the freedom and it is the challenge actually it's incredibly exciting and it's incredibly free um freeing and and what's kind of great is it, life here is often very very peaceful and that is just wonderful and it's kind of this this incredible mix of being tremendously exciting and a real buzz like total buzz but then just being very, very peaceful um, at the same time. And I, I think that's the, the, the kind of, yeah, it's, it's a really hard environment. So, so it's the inherent challenge that comes with, being, with living in, this, in, a, in the subarctic wilderness, the challenge and the buzz of that, as well as the peace of having kind of total freedom really within us you know within the small range of what we can do and what's possible here we're free to do what we want more or less I mean obviously there are rules about poaching and all that kind of thing I'm not saying that but you know in terms of what we want to do it's just our time's our own and we're free and, and that's an amazing thing an amazing gift brilliant and is there anything at all you miss about life in the UK <laughs> um well you know obviously friends and family so I mean you Every, every, most people who emigrate uh, miss that but yeah you know things like pubs you know Indian food um, I, I miss the fun, the funny thing is actually the things that I miss I, I sort of don't want to say because people in Britain are just going to be like gnashing their teeth because it's the things that no one has at the minute it's the buzz of being out in the, in a, in the city it's the buzz of being in town on a Saturday night it's going to pubs and you know going to restaurants Indi you know Indian particularly I miss you <laughs> there don't seem to be any at all anywhere Um uh, but because of the, the, the now this is a fascinating thing is like because of the coronavirus no one has uh, at the minute so at least we have this so it feels very churlish to be missing things that even people who live in urban Britain don't have at the minute you know so uh, yeah but th those are the things I miss. And one thing that we always ask um, people that we interview is what they would say to other women who are thinking of making a bold change in life to escape the norm so what would you say to any listeners who are maybe toying with the idea of, well, maybe living a life similar to you or, you know, something completely different? What would you say to them? Yeah. Oh, hang on. You can't tell them that they're an effing moron and they should just do it. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know what to say now then. We'll just get to the end, shall we? <laughs> Um, no, um, I think I would, for any listener, I would say, look, it worked for me and I can't really give anyone advice. But there is something I would like to say, because you said to women and what I would like to say to other women is um, be aware of what limitations you hold about your gender. Um, and those are the limitations that we get every day from society or maybe from someone specific who, who you know, tells you you can't do this, or you can't do that. But it's also what you're holding inside yourself you know there's this phrase internalized misogyny and, and I've been thinking about it a lot since I've moved here uh, because it brought me up against a lot of things being here it's made me think about a lot of stuff and what I want to say is I'm five foot one right 
even if I if I stand on tiptoes, I'm five foot one. I, I weigh about eight stone. I'm not very strong at all. Okay, I'm really small. Um, and I have done this. I hunt. I shoot. I I've learned to weld. I do mechanics here. I cut trees down. I run a chainsaw. Um, I do this stuff every day. Um, and it's not hand to hand combat. Okay. I'm, so I'm working. I'm not working against someone else. I'm working within my own limits. Um, and what I want to tell people is like nothing I've done requires a penis. Okay, it's a really <laughs> important point because most men will think this, and um, unfortunately, there's a lot of women that we may not even be aware of it. But I think we think this too. And, and I've sort of been aware more and more of the limitations I placed upon myself, even as a, as a woman who's very feminist and very out there. I was still holding these things. I still hold these things. Or I won't be as good as a man. Uh, and I don't know where they come from because Neil Campwell, he couldn't do any mechanics. We've learned that together. I'm a better shot. You know, he's a fantastic cook. He's great with all the technology, computer stuff. But we, we found we moved here without the skills and then we found what we could do. We found that naturally, not based on our gender. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't hold those things, but they are within me. So I think it's just a really important thing I would like to say to other women is if, is if you're not sure about something, just ask yourself, like, do I really need to be as strong as a big bloke to do it? Or is this something else that's holding me back that makes me think I couldn't do it or I shouldn't do it or I'll make a fool of myself if I try? Um, and, and that's the thing I would like to share with with listeners out there. That's a really powerful message. And it it, it really resonates with um, with me and I know it would with Amy as well. And you know, part of the reason why we set up this podcast and why it's uh, women telling stories about women is is for those reasons. We want to share the stories of other women to empower uh, our listeners. And, you know, we, I don't know, we might have some some guys. I know I actually know some guys that have listened to the podcast as well already and, and they've really enjoyed <laughs> it. But, yeah, the, the reason for this yep. is to empower other women. And I think your message there is really powerful as well. So thank you very much for that really good um just just wrapping up two two quick things to ask you um one is you mentioned that you're aged 50 um at the moment so yeah. what what does life look like for the future is the yukon your forever place now um yeah you know, I, one thing that changed since i moved here is i don't plan so um, we have no plans to leave and I love it here. Um, so I would say yes, but I'm also aware after the last few years experience of how quickly life can change and things can happen. Um, there will be a time limit on this for us because it requires um, a lot of physical ability. And, you know, we can do things like get a water pump, but ultimately there's a hundred foot steep bank out there um, that's too, you know, it's too kind of overgrown and steep for us to get a, like a track in. So we're always going to have to walk up it in the summer. So like there's going to be a limit. We're always going to be getting in and out of boats and on and off snow machines. So, um, so but I don't know when that, that would be. But um, aside from that, we no longer plan. So we're happy here and we intend to stay here. And, and that's that. We'll see what it's like tomorrow. Excellent. And the other thing was just in terms of, you know, you mentioned that um, you, you've got the rental income from the place in London and, and Neil's got a, <laughs> a, 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 a remote job, I think you said. Um, so in terms of your your life and your fulfilment, are you are you doing things as well in terms of following your passion or um, another form of employment out there? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I do the, the management of the properties. That's kind of what I do for money um and it's a very intensive lifestyle here is i could only compare it really to to living on a farm which you you, you know you, you guys would know a lot about um so there's a lot of work that needs to be done so neither of us want to or can 
work full, full time. So Neil's got a consultancy business kind of so he can just work, you know, you know, as and when he wants to. Um, I can't do my job from here. You know, I'm an actor. <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, so but what I've been trying to do, um, because I did miss when I first moved here, first of all, it was just very exciting. But then after a while, I missed having a creative outlet because I've always worked in the creative industry since I was, you know, since I uh, went to Polytechnic. Um, so I, I kind of miss that. So I've started writing uh, again, like I used to write when I was younger. And I've actually gone back to that. And that has been that that's a journey I'm at the beginning of. But it's 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 been really good fun. Um, I don't expect to make any money from it because writers never do. It's, it's like acting. But, you know, I'm working on a on a on some short stories at the minute and, and a fictional novel. So I'm just sort of going to see what I can do with that. But as I said, I think it's a very, very long journey. So at the minute, I'm just trying to get stuff together and learn. You know, the great thing with the internet is I'm doing little courses and you know things to kind of just teach me what I need to do. So, so that's that's my journey at the minute. Um, but as I said, most of our life here is out there. It's you know we're, we're doing stuff out there, whether it's hunting or mechanics or picking berries or getting wood. You know, we, and that's the life we came here for, not to be you know sat in front of a computer um, for vast parts of the day. That that was that was why. And we live very frugally. That's a another thing to point out you know there's not many things we can treat ourselves to in terms of luxury here in fact you know there's nothing at all I can't <laughs> even get a haircut or buy some nice clothes uh, there, there isn't just isn't that kind of thing so uh so we live frugally and make sure that we don't spend more than we've got coming in so we don't have that worry about you know uh having to earn lots of money and, and uh, leave here or give up our time here for that so it's also a choice about how we want to live I suppose Oh, definitely. And final question, because I know we've already shared um, your um, Instagram and your Facebook handle, and we'll put that in the show notes anyway. But final question you. for you. Um, what does living life differently mean to you? I mean, I think I think it's it's very individual thing. And for me, it's about living life the best it can be and not being limited by things that don't matter. By that, I mean, like, you know, things that other people do, what other people think, uh, what the societal norms are, what gender norms are. And obviously, I do mean like living within the law and being kind to other people and not hurting other people. Of course, there are there are limits on, you know, um, how you live. But I think the things that held me back and, and things that hold a lot of people back, are like things within our own head, they're just like, you know, fictions of our own imagination or they're, they're other people's fears or things that we worry that people might think you know about us if we do things and for me living life differently is it's not about what you do I've chosen to live in the bush but it's not about what you do it's about your, your attitude to it and in fact I've you know I could think of people who live here in the bush who choose to kind of fence themselves in and live in very kind of paranoid you know hateful head spaces you know people that I've come across and, and me and Neil have done that too sometimes when we've got too stressed or worried about stuff you know we've kind of completely fenced ourselves in so it's not about where you are I think the possibilities of what you do are endless um, but it's it's kind of it's about what finding what makes your soul sing and and then moving towards it and again you know really wise words finding what makes your soul sing and um I'm so glad that your stars aligned um, for you both, that you've been able to have this amazing opportunity to go and live your best life out in the Yukon. And we're both so grateful for you um, putting your time aside to speak to us tonight. And obviously, sorry, Amy, couldn't join us for the whole conversation, but no. 
she she was integral in uh, you know asking all of these poignant questions as well so Louise just thank you so much for the chat tonight I really do hope we get the opportunity to speak with you again uh, and I'm sure our listeners will find this quite an inspirational podcast episode so thank you so so much for your time well thank you thank you so much for having me on it's been really good fun to do uh, thank you very much Thank you again for listening to our podcast. We hope that Louise's story has been inspiring and maybe helped you to think about taking your own leap of faith into the unknown. This was, I think, our longest podcast episode and it was really difficult to to stop asking questions of Louise because I just found her and Neil's story absolutely intriguing. I'd love to meet them both one day. I'm not sure how, how quickly we'll get out to the Yukon, but... What we can't amazing... even get out of the garden. <laughs> yeah, we haven't left yet, but what an amazing adventure in life. Absolutely brilliant. So for those of you that don't know Ali and I personally, uh, we applied to go on a TV show to um, go out to Alaska. So a lot of the skills and stuff that um, Louise has shown, that she's just managed to obtain, uh, learn herself or be taught things, they were all things that we were quite interested in learning to begin with. Mm. Don't think we'd ever have got as good as she has, but yeah, really, really inspiring that she's achieved everything she wants to do. I think as well, it was really nice to hear about the harsh realities of that kind of life. Cause I think, you know, maybe for us and maybe some other people we might paint this picture of living in the wilderness and how lovely and romantic and epic it is. But actually the reality is it's harsh, it's brutal, but there are still so many great things about it as well. So if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd be very grateful if you could share it with your friends and family so that we can reach more people with these amazing stories. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you're enjoying the stories that we're sharing and would like to support us in some small way, then you can visit our profile on buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Mahojos. That link is in the show notes. Um, That way you can either buy us a coffee or become a regular supporter and that all helps with the work that we're doing on this podcast. You can also follow our own adventures by connecting with our website and social media channels. Links are in the show notes. Feel free to reach out and say hi. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast so far and where you're listening from. That's it from us for now. Look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Take care and stay safe.